Welcome to Make Me Your Voice with Pastor David Bartowell. These messages are intended to deepen your faith and trust in a living God who speaks to us with hope and reason. Today's message comes to us from the Gate Christian Bible Church in Orange County, California. Have you ever heard of the Westminster Catechism? Catechism means what? A teaching, right? Westminster Catechism came out in 1647. What happened was there were a bunch of theologians and pastors in England who got together and put together a teaching. And the first question in the teaching is, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what is man's ultimate purpose? Man's chief end or ultimate purpose in life is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is what brings most fulfillment to our life to glorify God. But how do you explain that? And how do you explain God's glory? Can you explain God's glory? When I look at something that is so beautiful that I can't explain it, like sometimes when the sun rises over the Saddleback Mountains and our backyard faces that way, it is what I would describe as glorious. The way the sun hits the clouds, and I have to take a picture of it so I don't forget it, right? That's what it means. God's glory is so beyond description, it's magnificent. And I agree with Stephen Nichols, who in his paper, The Glory of God, Present and Past, he defines glory as beauty, and he says this, Glory is that which is excellent, that which is extraordinary, that which is transcendent. Now, with that in mind, has there ever been anyone who walked this earth who most represented the glory of God. Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's always Jesus. Look at Colossians 1.15. Read it with me. The Son is the image of the invisible God. Right? So when we see the Son, we see God. 2 Corinthians 4.6. Read it with me. God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. The face of Christ. The picture that you want to remember is Christ. How do we have that picture? In the Bible. There's been a lot of paintings of Jesus. We really don't know what he looks like, but I'll tell you this, he's beautiful. How do we know that? Because we read about what he did for us and how he helped people and touched people who were down and out and healed them. I remember Keith Green, when I came to Christ, Keith Green had already passed away. He died of a plane crash. And Keith Green was one of the most prolific hymn writers of our generation, probably ever. In a matter of three years, he recorded so many songs. God saved them and then just sent them out to just change the world with his songs. And I'll never forget this one. Oh, Lord. You're beautiful, your face is all I seek, for when your eyes are on this child, your grace abounds in me, right? So the face of Christ brings the glory of God to our life. God's creation exists to display his glory, including you and including me. 
go back all the way to Genesis 1.26. And what does it say? God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, speaking of the Trinity, in our likeness. And how did God do that? He gave us certain attributes of himself that are called communicable attributes that he shared with us. What are some of those? We have the ability to what? Know, love, what? To have free will, right? That's a gift from God. We have wisdom. We can be good. We can show mercy. And another part of it, he passed on our spiritual nature because the Bible says God is spirit and we have a spirit that God has given us. You know how else he displays his glory and his likeness through human beings? Gender. Look at Genesis 127. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them how? Male and female. We diminish the gender sometimes that God has created us with. It's a way of expressing his glory through our life. And from the beginning of time, mankind's chief goal in life has been to reflect the glory of God to the world around them. I like what Christopher Morgan, he's one of my professors, he says, as the image of God, man was created to reflect, express, and participate in the glory of God in miniature creaturely form. Something happened, though. What happened that has marred God's image? Sin, right? So the mirror that God reflects through in our life was cracked and broken, right? And we can't reflect God's glory in all fullness because of the broken mirror. Now, that's a huge problem. If our life exists to give glory to God, but the mirror is cracked, that's problematic. So, how is that solved? Well, by God's Son, who has restored and redeemed us. And this is what 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, but we all with unveiled face, meaning we don't have to wear a veil over a face like Moses did. We're under grace. Beholding as in the mirror of the glory of the Lord are being transformed into what? The same image of Christ. Now, this is important. From glory to glory. So, let me just tell you this. When you receive Jesus Christ, you receive the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. God. So if God lives in you, does the glory of God live in you? Or did he just give you a little bit of his glory? He lives in you. And one day you will be fully glorified before the Lord. But that does not mean that does, has not happened. See, we live in a time. We live in limitations of time. God lives outside of time. What has happened in Christ has happened, but it will also happen. So glory You've received glory. One day you will stand before him face to face, glorified. On this earth, we are being transformed glory to glory to glory, a little bit glory, glory, glory. One day, boom, we're glorified in our body before Jesus. I mean, think about it. People don't think about this enough. Jesus himself modeled this. 
right? Well, first of all, he modeled it where? On the mountain, remember, with Peter, and he was glorified. He was like so bright. That's the glory of Christ while he was a human. And then Jesus rose from the dead. What did he do? Was he walking around as a spirit? No, he had a body, a resurrected body, right? What happened? The Bible says that sometimes they show up in rooms without walking through a door, you know? Think about that. If what the Bible says is true, that we have received all the inheritance in Christ through his saving work and him coming into our life, then we are in Christ, which means he's in us. We've received all those things. It just hasn't happened in time yet. And this is what I want to tell you. God made you. He didn't make mistakes. He gave you himself. If you're in Christ, if you're a believer, he lives in you. And he wants you to show that glory to others in your body, through your life. Don't diminish God's glory in your life. Never diminish how God made you. Okay? This is the sad part of what I hear all the time. I'm not happy with how, you know, myself. Well, fine. Some of us might need to work on certain things, right? But don't ever diminish God's creative work in your life and especially his recreative work in Christ. Okay? So that's important because today we're going to talk about Job finding hope in suffering. What can I learn about God from Job's suffering? Now, remember, we've gone through many sermons on Job. So we're past the depressing parts, but we're going to find out Job is going to have the V8 moment, right? So number one, God's providence is sometimes beyond my understanding. In other words, the way God works for his glory, sometimes we don't understand it. Remember, the story of Job is one of suffering and restoration. And the reason one can find hope in suffering is because of the knowledge that one day everything's going to be made new. And this happened to Job later, but not before God taught him a lesson, a really important lesson. And this is it in a nutshell. Don't try to over-rationalize God. Don't try to fit him in your box. Isaiah 55, 8, read this with me. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In other words, we are finite, miniature, creaturely beings trying to like put God in a box, and he's saying, don't do that. I'm well beyond that. I'm way out of your box. So Job's friends, what were they trying to do? Put God in a box. You know, Job, the reason you're suffering is because of your sin. If you'd only repent, the suffering will stop. That's not what God said about Job. God said, have you noticed my servant Job, righteous and blameless, fearing the Lord? So God had a different idea of Job. He allowed suffering for his glory. But his friends were like, Job, you must be doing something wrong. So God had enough of it. And he didn't take very well to the counseling skills of his friends. So he says, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, which is Job's friend, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Wow, that's a heavy responsibility. I don't take lightly speaking of God. It's a humbling 
thing to be called to speak of God. But guess what? Everyone's called to speak of God. And we all have certain knowledge of God that we should share. But don't put God in your box. Okay? So after this long deluge of theological bloviations, I like that word, given by Job's friends, God finally answers Job himself. And he says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens my providence or my counsel by words without knowledge? And he says, Okay, Job, gird up your loins, which means like it could mean get ready for a battle or a difficult task. Get ready for a difficult one because I'm going to ask you some questions and you're going to try and instruct me now. Okay, so this is the ultimate PhD class in God's creative providence just laid out. And we're not going to have time to go through everything. But if you later on read through chapters 38 through the end in Job, I'm just going to hit on some things, okay? But here's the key here. He really focuses on his creation, on his providential creation. In chapter 38, you can open up and follow along if you want, but I'm going to skip around. Chapter 38 of Job, in verse 4, he starts this way. Job, where were you when I created the earth? Tell me if you have understanding of who measured it, since you know. I don't know if he said it that way, but. And then in verse 12, have you ever in your life, Job, commanded the morning and the dawn to break. In other words, Job, are you the traffic director of the universe? And then verse 17, Job, have the gates of death been shown to you? Or have you seen the deep darkness? In other words, Job, do you know where death abode lies? And then verse 32, Job, can you lead forth a constellation Can you create a constellation, Job? Can you guide the bear, which is, we know it as the Ursa Major? And I love this because people discovered this later. This is about somebody who lived 4,000 years ago. Okay? Have you ever seen the Ursa Major and all the other stars around it? And then in chapter 39, I love this. He now talks about his animal creation. He says, Job, do you know the time when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the deer? Can you count the months they fulfill? Or do you know the time when they give birth? Think about that. God knows the moment that animals are giving birth. He cares enough about that. And then in verse 19 of chapter 9, Job, Did you give the horse his might? Did you clothe his neck with that mane? Job, verse 26, is it by your understanding that the hawk soars? Stretching his wings toward the south, God knows that. Job, is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? That's just a summary. But in chapter 40, Job answered the Lord and said, I am insignificant. What can I say to you? I'm going to shut my mouth. For 33 chapters, his friends 
and Job go back and forth, theologizing about God and why God is doing certain things. And now he shuts his mouth. He should have shut it up earlier, as I should sometimes. And then chapter 42 is where Job finally just comes to the end of himself. And he says, Lord, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be stopped. Who is this that hides counsel with knowledge? And then he goes, therefore, I have declared that I don't understand everything. Things are too wonderful for me. I do not know about them. So now Job says, I'm going to speak. This is what he says. Lord, you instruct me. I'm not very good at instructing you. In fact, you don't need instructing. And then he says in verse 5, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen you. How did he see him? By his word. And then this is the greatest part. Lord, I retract everything I just said, and I'm going to repent in dust and ashes. Now, what's interesting is what God did not say to Job. It's very surprising. He did not mention Job's suffering. He gave no explanation of the problem of evil. He didn't defend himself against Job's charge of injustice. He made no comment on the retribution principle. God simply revealed himself to Job to a greater degree than he had known. And that greater degree of revelation silenced him. This is why the Word of God is so important. Life exists beyond salvation. Theology exists beyond salvation. God exists beyond your salvation. What I mean by that is we always say, yeah, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, and that's true. But the more revelation and the deeper instruction you receive, you become more in awe of God's glory. That is why we have to be in the face of Christ through the Word of God. Secondly, God is sovereign, but he allows free will. That's something we learn about God, right? In Job, we learn it. What's the best way we learn it? Satan. Remember? The Satan, right? The accuser was created as a beautiful angel, Lucifer, whose job was to glorify God in heaven. But he chose a different path, and he, along with a third of the other angels, fell from heaven and took on the form of demons. So, God sovereignly created Lucifer as a beautiful angel, but Lucifer still had free will. So, how can it be that God is sovereign and allows choices? Think of a king of a kingdom. If a king is the king of a kingdom, does that mean somebody might not commit tyranny? No. Many people commit tyranny. Adam and Eve committed tyranny against God, against his rule. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1, probably becoming my favorite chapter in the entire Bible. I'll tell you why. Chapter 1 reveals the Trinity in action. The Father chooses. The Son acts on his behalf. The Spirit seals. The Father chooses, the Son acts, the Spirit seals, and we are the beneficiaries of that. But look at verse 3. 
in Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. It doesn't say will bless us, has blessed us, speaking to the church, with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us. Did you know God chose you? You didn't choose God. See, that's the thing. It's like a two-sided coin. Just in the book of John, you see it all over the place. But here's two places where you can see this. Jesus says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. Right? So that's kind of like a choice. He also says, you did not choose me. I chose you. So it's almost as if when we get to heaven and we enter the gate, he says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me. And you walk in, you see that. Wow, man, it's all about me. And then you look on the other side. You didn't choose me. I chose you. God is the one who chose you. And he chose us when? Before the creation of the world. You weren't born yet. To be holy and blameless before him in love. Because it's all about love. He predestined us to be adopted as sons in Jesus Christ according to his kind will. And then this is the key. Why did he do that? To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Who is the beloved? His son, Jesus Christ. How do we know that? Well, some translations capitalize it. But if you go on, it talks about him. In him, we have redemption through his blood. So we know that the beloved is Jesus. We have been predestined to be called into him by God's grace. That is an amazing thing that God did for you. Before the creation of the world, before sin entered the world, before anything was created, God chose you to be on his team. I hated when I was a kid. Like, you remember you're on the playground and you're like, I hope I'm not the last one picked. Or like, oh, you go play over that team, you know? No, God picked you on his team. So here's some things to keep in mind. God chose the elect before the creation of the world. After the creation of the world, sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3. At that moment, everyone, including the elect, the ones that were chosen, were plunged into darkness and separated from God and his kingdom. And the rest of the Bible is the story of God's redemptive action to purchase you back and transfer you, get this, and transfer you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, which is in his Son. In Revelation 13, it says, It was also given, now this is speaking of the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, the future world leader. It says, it was given to him, to that person, by Satan, by the way, the dragon, to make war with the saints and to overcome them and authority over every tribe. Here's the problem is that when we are outside of Christ, outside of God's grace, we are a part of the Antichrist's kingdom. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. In other words, earth dwellers. Don't be an earth dweller. Be a heavenly dweller. I just said that you're already seated with him in heaven. Be there. Think there. But live here. 
be his glory agent. But those who dwell on the earth will worship him. And here's the key. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who has been slain. Who's the lamb who's been slain? Because here's the thing. A good movie includes more than good acting. It includes a powerful storyline. And this storyline usually includes a problem that must be solved. One of my favorite movies is Taken. Brian Mills, played by Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson discovers that his daughter Kim has been abducted by Albanian terrorists and is destined to become a sex slave. And the rest of the movie involves Neeson's journey to redeem his daughter from death and destruction. Well, the Bible is a similar story. We, the elect, the chosen ones, were abducted. And by the way, when I say chosen, people go, oh, yeah, I'm so good. No, (laughs) don't take it that way. God chose you in spite of yourself. We, the chosen ones, were abducted by a hostile enemy to be taken as a slave to sin and death. Jesus, God's son, sets out on a recovery mission to redeem and purchase what was lost. That's why God's son had to enter the scene. Now, in Revelation, the last book in the Bible, chapter 5, this is another one of my favorite chapters because it's so important. Listen to this. John is in heaven, the apostle. He says, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals, which, by the way, there's a controversy over what that means. But in Jeremiah, there's a similar reference to a book with seven seals, and it's a deed to property. I think it's the deed to the earth. Okay, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book, to break its seals, because it had to be opened, to take back, and for God to redeem what was lost. So no one in heaven and earth could do it. And what happens to John? I began to weep. Do you know how sad it would be if that was the end of the story? I began to weep, because nobody was found worthy to open the book. And one of the elders said to me, John, stop crying. Look, the lion that's from the tribe of Judah. He has overcome. He's the one that can open the book. And I saw, John says, between the throne and the elders, a lamb. So there's a lion, but he had to be a lamb first, standing as if slain, as if slain. He's not slain. He's alive having seven horns, seven eyes. This is the Spirit of God. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him and sat on the throne. He takes it out of the Father's hand. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down and worshipped the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense. That means the prayers of people. And what did they do? They sang a new song. See, they got it. They get it. We should get it. And they said, worthy are you to break the seals for you were slain. And what did you do? You purchased for God men from every tribe, tongue, and people, all of us who were under the prison and lordship of the devil and his kingdom of darkness. You purchased those people. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests. 
and they will reign with you on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures, countless of peoples in heaven and earth. What do they say? Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and glory and blessing and every created being which is in heaven and earth. That means everyone sang to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. We need to fall down and worship more. But just get back up because we need you to go out and spread the gospel, the glory of Christ. It's important. See, the book of Job is a story of God's grace. God was not obligated to reveal himself to Job. Do you know that God is not obligated to reveal himself to us? He's not obligated. In fact, for 400 years, Israel waited and waited, and God didn't reveal himself. And then Jesus shows up. Was Jesus obligated to come and save you? No. But it had to happen. Why? Because God chose us before he created the world, and then sin entered the game. And by the way, there's no plan B. I don't like when people say I was plan B. No, plan A. God knew the whole time. He's not like, oh my gosh, I didn't take that into consideration. But it had to happen. The Lamb of God is the one who takes away the sin of the world. The book of Job, as Scripture does, reveals both sides of a coin. You can see one side, but maybe not the other. But there's two sides. God is sovereign, but there is free will. Job could have chosen to curse God. He did not. Did God know that Job would choose rightly? Of course. That's called foreknowledge. But does that mean that Job didn't have a choice? No. A good passage to show this is Philippians 2, 12-13. Look at it. Paul says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But then he says, For it is God who works in you to do his will. So how does that work? Well, it means that salvation is a free gift, but I'm responsible to work it out to be faithful, which means that I build my faith muscles, which means that I employ faith and I dismiss fear and I trust God, even though it might not be to my advantage because I want to glorify God. And it means that I'm sacrificing what I want for a higher purpose. And I do that with respect and fear of God, meaning that I glorify him so that the world would see him. That's my part. What's God's part? He's going to complete what he started. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. When you submit to God, his will is carried out in your life. I think about my buddy, and he called me buddy, Rick Muchow, Pastor Rick Muchow. I think of Rick, he was my first pastor, a mentor, a confidant, a friend. And if there's one thing I would say about Rick, he submitted his life to the Lord all the way to the end as Job did. But Job didn't die here. He eventually died here, but not as Rick passed on due to illness. But the example of that is powerful. Well, guess who is the perfect example of that? Jesus Christ. He submitted himself to the Father in obedience, even to death on a cross. Do you know that the cross was God's will? 
Job surrendered himself to a greater purpose, God's purpose. He suffered for a purpose greater for himself, even that we get to read about it and learn and understand a little more about God. But here's what I want to say to you. You don't have to understand in order to stand under God's authority. Don't forget that. You don't have to understand in order to stand under God's authority. God's glory in fact, it's sometimes reflected in our suffering and our weakness. You know why? Because that's a picture of Christ who suffered and glorified God through his suffering. The display of God's grace and the suffering of the Lamb echoes forever in an all-satisfying praise of the redeemed. So even in the suffering, God's glory is displayed, and it's our ultimate purpose, and it might involve something that you don't necessarily liked or that you necessarily didn't plan on. But here's the thing. As Job suffered and lost everything, he gained it back in his next life. We will suffer on this earth, but that suffering will be replaced with glory in the next life. And sometimes he does that in this life. But the point is we glorify God. What is the last thing that I want to talk about today about God Job's suffering is that God is love. What do we learn about God? A lot of things, but I want to tell you this. God is love. The glory of God is displayed in the face of Christ. We don't know exactly what Jesus looked like, but if you were to ask anyone about Jesus, most would say that he's a good person and a loving man. What do they think about the church? Not necessarily. Why? Because we're not glorifying God by showing his love. And John wrote, Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoying forever. What is the best way to reflect God's glory to a broken world? Love. The best way to show love to others is to show Jesus. How do you show Jesus? I'm going to end with letting Jesus explain. This is what he says in his prayer in John chapter 17. I pray, Father, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. They will know Jesus by your love, first for your brother and sister in Christ, because if you can't love someone who's like you, you ain't going to love someone who's not. And then to the world. That is our purpose, to glorify God. That is the ultimate purpose of man. And we need to fall down and worship and continue to allow him to work through us in submission. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for Job, who came to his senses, Lord, and repented of putting you in a box. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone in here today that may need to uh, repent, which basically means to stop believing what you believe is true and start believing what God says is true in anything in your life, I pray, Lord, that you would show them. And you're a grace-filled God. There's no condemnation in you. So if anyone feels condemnation, that's not from you. But Lord, I'm so grateful that you offer grace through Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain, who purchased us back and transferred us back from the kingdom of darkness 
into the kingdom of light. And for that, Lord, we give you glory and praise forever and ever. And everyone said, Amen. Pastor David Bartowell's message reminds us that God speaks to us with hope and reason so that we can be His voice in this world. Please join us again for Make Me Your Voice, a ministry of the Gate Christian Bible Church in Orange County, California. We would love to have you join us for a Sunday service. For more information or to find our location, please visit thegatecbc.com. Make me-